The entire purpose of life is to throw us curveballs and make us adjust on the fly. For Alicia Holt, those curveballs were more than just minor shifts. They were life-altering changes. Alicia shares how she's walked through loss, corporate America, and motherhood. The climb to the top feels so good when you get there. Is it just us, or can it feel lonely sometimes, even when you're successful? And who defines success anyway? What about life's twists and turns? We've learned a few things along the way, and we're ditching the culture of competitiveness. Bringing together women from different backgrounds to share their stories. Let's do this together. Welcome to Think Tank of Three podcast. Hi, I'm Rishi Candidate Capasuris, along with Julie Holton and Audrea Fink. We are your Think Tank of Three. And we are so excited to introduce you to today's guest. She is the epitome of woman powering through. She's the marketing director for Frederick Wildman and Sons Wine Importers, having been promoted to that position from senior brand manager after she was first lured away from Mars Incorporated. And while she is pushing her way through corporate America, she's also a mom to a 10-year-old son. Without question, this is her priority position, but it changed dramatically when her husband passed away six years ago. Alicia, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here on Think Tank of Three podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Glad to have you. So excited to speak with you. Alicia's a very good friend of mine. And so this is exciting always when we have someone that we are uh, extra connected to on our show. So let's get into it. A Black woman in marketing and not just in marketing, the marketing director. This matters, yes. especially today. Walk us through it, Alicia. How, how did you make your way? Well, you know, to be honest with you, uh, it was a, a kind of a stumble. It wasn't something that I necessarily, you know, I was on the path to do that. I like so many young people were trying to figure things out. I actually started back in, um, in research. I was in food science um, in undergrad. I also started to pursue that in grad school. And I just had this epiphany one day of, you know, I don't really like this. Like, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't my wheelhouse. While I enjoyed food, you know, I enjoyed research on a certain level. I just feel like, you know, long term is this what I really want to do for, for a while? Decided not to do that, but I decided to go into the business side of food. And, you know, I literally one day, uh, I, I was on Penn State, I was at the food science building and the, the business school was right across the walkway. And I just left and I walked across one day and I sat in somebody's office. I was like, how do I get in here? <laughs> how do I, how do I make this transition? And I was able, I was able to do that. And I ended up getting my, uh, my business degree uh, from Penn State. And I, that's kind of my step into, into business. I love how you describe that like literal change of walking across to another building like that, the vision that that puts in my head of how many women right now who are listening, who are in the process of making some of these major life changes in these decisions and to be able to see how you literally took the steps to say, how do I do this other thing instead? How, how did that feel for you? I mean, like here you are, and it's hard to think back to, I think sometimes like to college and maybe, maybe you recognize, maybe you didn't, what a big shift that would be in your life. What did it feel like to make that change? It was a little scary, but I knew I had made the right decision. You know, sometimes you say you don't know what you want to do until you do it. And then your mind is like, oh yeah, I feel good about it. That's what made me be like, okay, 
this feels right. This is the right decision. And my, my mother had said something to me before, which was that, you know, when I was younger, I remember I got my first job at 15. And I remember her being kind of against it in this. And she said to me, you have all your life to work. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I was like what? you know, it's, it seems like a, you know, a duh statement, but that was in the back of my mind when I was on this path. And I was like, if I'm going to be doing this, you know, for a long part of my life, do I want to do this? And it was like, no, I, I mm. don't. And that was always in the back of my mind. So when I was moving to different positions and I, I decided to make that decision and I actually was able to get into business school, you know, it was like, do you think you could do this for, you know, the rest of your life? And in my mind, I was like, yeah, I, I really think I can. And that's what made me really feel like, okay, I've made the right decision. To have the the mental capacity, the mental awareness at that stage in your life to, to ask that, let's face it, very deep question. Is this something I can see myself doing for the rest of your life? Because you're what at this point, early twenties. Yeah. You're not there. You're not asking. Most are not really asking that question. They're, they're just kind of you know, you're supposed to be just kind of figuring out what it is. I want to do this. I want, I want to go travel. I want to go find myself. And, but you are asking a question that, that existential question, can I see myself doing this for the larger, you know, for the long haul? And that, that's, that's a pretty intense introspection at that time in your life. Because I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be happy with what I was doing. Right. And I knew that, you know, let's be, let's face it all four of us could actually do a lot of things. Would you be happy doing those things is an entirely different right. question. And I didn't want to go and do a job because I could technically do it. You know, I get a paycheck. I live okay. I wanted to actually be excited and happy about what I was doing. And, you know, at that point, at that point, it was just me, right? I wasn't, you know, I didn't have anybody. I didn't have any kids. I didn't, you know, I just wanted to be happy with what I was doing. And a lot of times you don't know until you get into it. But you oftentimes know what you don't want to do. And I knew what I didn't want to do. So there was no need in me continuing down a path of something that I was sure I did not want to do. So when it comes to even something that's a little bit new, but I have interest in it, it feels right versus something I just know I don't want to do. It felt like the right path, right? It, it was an easy decision at that point. I love that we're having this conversation. It feels very nostalgic in a way to have it because when this podcast started, it started because Julie and I were looking at the roles we were in and thinking we didn't have a clear path, right? Like we started working, we had jobs, but we didn't necessarily know what the next thing was going to be. And I think it's really important to normalize this idea of you're not going to go and your first job, you know, out of college or even your degree, first degree out of college is not necessarily going to set the path for your life. You really have to say, okay, do I like what I'm doing? Is this feeding my soul? You know, is this work meaningful for me or am I just clocking in, clocking out? And there's nothing wrong with just clocking in, clocking out if that's what you want for your life. But if you're looking for a career it can be really hard to just take the first job you get out of college and then hope that that is the right one. 
And how many people leave college knowing that the degree they just earned is not in the field that they want to go into, but it takes so much courage at any step to be able to change course. We talk at length on this podcast about women navigating the corporate world and being confident uh, within that space. So Alicia, I'd love to ask, what have you had to deal with, not just as a woman, but as a woman of color in corporate America? That's a very loaded question on, on a, you know, multiple levels, because I think part of the things that women and women of culture, color deal with in, you know, corporate culture, it's just something that's ingrained in the culture. And I think a lot of times, even the people that we work with don't understand how so much of that bias is interwoven in, in just how the corporate culture is stacked up and works. You know, for instance, I was on a meeting the other day with, you know, a sales team, some other clients that we were working with, and there were 66 people on the call. Six were women, two were people of color. You know, I I don't know what made me kind of scroll through, you know, because it's on a Zoom call, of course, but you can see everybody's camera. And I'm just like, wow, (laughs) wow, you know, this this is really, you know, so I was the only woman of color on the call. There was one other man of color um, on the call. And, you know, but I also had to say to myself, yeah, you know, did I, did I, was I surprised? No, it's just the, the culture and the world that we live in and we operate in it. That's just how it works. I think what I didn't understand coming in was how political corporate culture is. You know, with research, I have been that type of person that felt like the work will speak for itself. No, nah. It's not necessarily how it works, right? You, you think that's how it works. If I do a good job and I do what they tell me to do and, you know, and my output is, you know, X, Y, Z, that'll be enough to move up. And it's just not going to be. And I had to come to that realization uh, really, really early on. And then I had to figure out, okay, so how do I succeed? If I like what I'm doing, but I feel like either I'm not getting any kind of recognition I'm not getting any kind of, you know, shine. I don't see any upward mobility really happening. I'm recognizing that the people around me don't see me as a leader. How do I have to make that shift? And then I have to do some real soul searching to to kind of figure that path out. It's the fallacy of meritocracy. The assumption that if I just work really, really hard, people are going to see how awesome I am. And And sadly, in business, that's just not the case. The squeaky wheel, if you will, is the one that gets tended to because it's the it's the the person who is saying, look at all of these amazing things I'm doing is the person who then gets recognized. We just had a guest on who was a VIP at a very large company. And she said the only way that she moved up was to essentially act like a man and toot her own horn talk about what she has been doing and why it's been successful. In-house politics, no matter who you are, is complicated, especially when you are a woman or a woman of color. So talk to us a little bit about the client perspective. How did you see some of those issues playing out as a woman and a woman of color in leadership with your clients? I think a lot of it, I happen to be on the marketing end. So the the benefit that I have is typically people are trying to please, you know, to please me, right? Because they want my business. But, you know, things have been overt and then things have been not so, you know, a little bit more subtle. I will see things like 
people feeling like they can speak to me differently and be super comfortable because I'm the cool black girl. And of course you'll understand. And I can talk about these things because she's going to be cool with it. I've been in positions where I've been standing by a coworker that was, that was not black and somebody's coming over to talk to us at a trade show or something. And they spend all their time directing their energy to my coworker because they assume she's the one that's making the decisions. And then it all comes down to my coworker having to say, well, actually she, you know, Alicia is the person you should be talking to. And you see their face kind of go, uh-oh. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Uh-oh, <laughs> because now I, I look at you differently in terms of how things uh, can be done. And then I think this happens with people of color and in no other group. And I, I don't really know why is that people take an experience that they've had in the workplace with one person of color or one woman and they apply that to every person that every minority that follows, right? Yes. And the idea that, yeah, I'm not saying that every woman in the workplace you're gonna have a great experience with or just performs or is outstanding or every person of color is that. But for some reason, you can have so many people that are fired that are, you know, white males and they don't think anything of hiring 10 more right behind this person. But God forbid there's a mistake with a woman or a person of color. It's like, that's the warning bell. We got to be careful about those people, right? And I, I feel like that's where it comes down to, you know, you don't really have the wiggle room to mess up because you're really messing up for everybody that comes in behind you. They will never let you forget it. Corporate America is so frustrating to me. The, the <laughs> fact that you guys are a part of corporate America, I, I just feel like, how have you not lost it on people? Because- you are literally, if you are constantly keeping yourself in check, because you know that you have to make sure that your persona is on point at all times, even in the world of saying, well, then act like a man and toot your own horn. At the same time, you have to do that carefully too, because then they're looking at, well, why is she acting like, and you know, she's aggressive, right? That, that it's not, you're not savvy for a man. You're savvy for a woman. You're you're pretty aggressive or, you know, there's th- some other random adjective to describe how you are presenting yourself as a business person, even though you're presenting yourself the exact same way the male counterpart is, but because it's coming from you, it's different. That is a lot of hats to maintain. How are you not tired? I- I'm asking all three of you, because I-, oh. I don't understand how you do you remember just a couple of days ago no. when I was like a crying hot mess and I was like I don't know what's wrong with me and you're like I know what's wrong with you you're dealing with too much at once like that's how we handle it bring it home really you you bring it home it builds up over time and and day and, and I'll speak for myself so day after day after day you focus on doing the right thing. You focus on representing who you are and your own true authentic self in business. And there are some days that are better than others. And some days that fight creeps up on you. Um, that, that's how I experience it. But at the same time, I will tell you that I am so empowered, feel so empowered, even just by being surrounded right now in this podcast by the three of you. Because when you are standing together, um, locking arms with other women who are fighting that fight along with you, it gives you a feeling that, you know what, we can, we can live another day. We can get through this and we can get through it stronger and better than ever before. 
I agree with that. I, I have also found out that me tooting my horn isn't enough. Advocacy mm. in the workplace is huge, right? So you need to have somebody above you, not your, not your work bestie, not your work husband that sits beside you in the cubicle. You need to have somebody above you that is sitting in those decision-making rooms that will vouch for you. Absolutely. That makes all of the difference in the world because everybody's going to say that they're great, right? I can toot my horn. I can say all the other thing, but, and you know, even having a man that vouches for you, honestly, is as sad as it is to say, because that mm-hmm. that's a level of respect that you've gained. You got to mm-hmm. have somebody that vouches for you. That's why if you find yourself in a position where you have a boss that doesn't really care about the people under them and where they go and their track record. I've had people tell me, look, your job is to make me look good. I knew in that moment there were, this person didn't care an iota about my career path or me moving right. up or me doing anything. And that was like, okay, where can I go? Because this person is supposed to be my advocate. Mm-hmm. And if they're not my advocate, and when those decisions are being made, they're not going to raise their hand and say, hey, Alicia is good at so-and-so, or Alicia mm-hmm. has done whatever, when I'm not there to be able to, to toot my own horn. So that, that means something. So I would say to anybody, find you an advocate. I don't care if you have to create your own cross-functional teams. And so you have people above you so that you can do things. You need to find people that will vouch for you and not just yourself, because that means a lot. And that gains a lot of respect from a company perspective. When I was at the law firm I was at, my first year, I, I worked really, really hard. And I had a leader that I worked with who told me in his commission meeting, his compensation meeting, that he told everyone he couldn't have done what he did without me. This compensation meeting had nothing to do with me, but he was such an advocate of me that he really promoted me. And it made me think, okay, that he's talking to people who make compensation decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure that when I'm having conversations about other people who I think are awesome, I'm going to, I'm going to plug them when I can. It's important to not only get yourself an advocate, but to be an advocate because then other people also want to recommend you. Alicia, you know, while being a, a full-time corporate boss is, is what you do. Your number one job is being a mom, but you're now a mom on your own after the death of your husband. Very difficult topic. I know. Uh, can you discuss what, what happened there? Uh, at a partner, we were together for seven years. Uh, he passed away in, in 2015. Our son had just turned four about a, about a month before. And he's 29 years old and he, uh, he died. He, we, we, after we found out that he ended up having, or he had a um, genetic heart condition that no one, we didn't know about. And so I found myself which is a position I never thought I would be in, a truly single parent overnight, right? And I say single, meaning the other person is just not around. He's not up the street. We're not, you know, <laughs> he's gone. And I have a little boy. I grew up with sisters and I'm just sitting there by myself thinking, oh my God, what am I gonna do? Especially because he was such a hands-on dad. He was really, really, really hands-on. 
you know, when, when our son was sick, he stayed home. He was the one that stayed home and took care of him, you know, and did those things. He was the person that took him to his first, you know, time to see Santa, took him to his first, you know, the, the beach, you know, the first time. I remember it was like 11, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, and we just had our son and he was only a few months old and he was, he wanted to go to the store and he grabbed our son. And I was like, I was like, where, where, where are you going? He was like, well, we're going to the store. I was like, well, he's three months. He's not your wingman. <laughs> I was like, put him down. <laughs> That's how much he, he took him everywhere, right? They just had this really, really, really tight bond. And I just found myself being like, just, I was just overly distraught. I, my father had passed away and I felt like nothing could be worse than that. And then this happened and I just, I just didn't know what to do. And I just found myself in a very precarious situation of being a single parent, having a full-time job, not having a second person to help, not having a second person that did a lot of the, lot of the heavy lifting when it came to our son around, you know, thinking about financial stability long-term, like all these things were happening overnight and you don't have time to think because guess what? Tomorrow the sun rises and you got to keep going and you just got to figure things out. And I just... I was really lost for, uh, for several months, just trying to figure things out. Alicia, your son was so young when he lost his dad and what a blessing that they had been so close before his dad passed. How did you help your son deal with his grief and his loss while you were experiencing your own? You know, initially, I don't know that I, I did the best job of that because I couldn't really I couldn't really find a North star in terms of how to deal with, you know, the first thing you do is try to figure out, well, what do the books say? And what is, you know, do I have somebody I can talk to? Jamel was 29. We were young. Mm. I didn't know anyone who had lost, you know, a partner that young and was left with the child. I, you know, my mother was a widow. I had older people that were widows. I didn't, I didn't have anybody that I felt like I could talk to that would truly understand, you know, what I was feeling. I tried to do some, you know, grief groups with, with Dorian for younger kids who had lost parents. And obviously the mothers were there really, you know, for people who had lost, um, you know, a partner. And I think that helped because Dorian didn't have anybody, even at his school, right? Because when his friends were talking about, oh, my dad's not here or my mom's not here, they meant divorce. They didn't mean they were, they had passed away. What I also didn't realize is that because I was immediately struck, I assumed that my son would be immediately struck. And unfortunately, because he was so young, you know, you have the conversation, you know, daddy's gone. He's not going to be coming back. At four years old, they're not able to comprehend forever, right? right. So even though I was having these conversations with my son and, you know, he was still asked, well, you know, where is daddy? Well, I haven't seen daddy where so, so you could, I, so I had to have the conversation over and over and over again, which, you know, doesn't make it easier, but you, you got to have it right. Your mom, you got to power through it. And so I honestly felt like my son's grieving was so delayed because until he was about five, daddy hadn't been around for a year and he really started to understand what death meant, what forever meant is when he started to grieve. So it was really, really delayed to where I was, you would think a year later, things are getting better, 
it was actually the opposite because he had a level of understanding that he just didn't have when he was four. So, you know, being around those other kids, I think helped a lot. I think it helped me to personally be grateful because, you know, I was around women who had four kids, you know, and their husband had passed away. You know, one woman's husband had committed suicide and there were, you know, there were so many other instances and, you know, women who had to really watch their, their husband suffer through, you know, long cancer battles. And I was like, you know, as tough as it is for me, like I couldn't be these women, you know what I mean? It was, it just put in perspective, you know, the hurt that people are going through. And while you feel like yours and is insurmountable and you, but you see how these, uh, and they were so gracious and they were so sweet and they were so willing to talk to me about things and, you know, offer up things. And, you know, it was just like, if they can do it, I, I definitely can do it. Right. So, you know, I didn't stay in the group for an extended amount of time, but even the time that we were there, it gave me so much more oomph and strength to be like, okay, girl, like you, you, you got to get it together because life has to move forward and you got to be there for your son and you have to have a child that you hope doesn't fear death, right? Because mm. you have to have a conversation with your child that you hope to not have to have it for, you know, mommy's going to die one day too. And mm-hmm. grandma's going to die one day and you're going to die one day. It is all everyone who lives in. So you're trying to build that. But I, I got to a point where it shifts your relationship with your child. I am so abundantly open and honest with my son because I don't, I don't ever want him to be caught by surprise about things that happen in life and even bad things, bad things happen. Yeah. They just happen. And so I feel like the conversation was shifted much, much earlier in his life because of what obviously happened to us. But, you know, we, we are open. And my son can ask me anything. I don't care if it's about sex. I don't care if it's about death. I don't care if it's about, you know, alcohol, right? <laughs> ask me anything and I will give you the honest answer. Obviously it's something that he can understand, but it made it so that I really understood how important it is to have an open dialogue with my son, because I don't ever want him to be going through something or thinking something and not be able to come to me because he now doesn't have that male figure to go to, right? The things that you would think that he would talk to his father about, because they were so close. I knew from that moment moment on things changed, but I think for the better. You've touched on it already a little bit. I was going to ask you, you know, we had been talking and you were saying you didn't realize how much you had given to your career prior to the death of Dorian's dad. So what did you mean by that? Because I think you've, you've kind of expressed it pretty good when you just said he was scooping him up to take him to the grocery store at 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, hold your roll. <laughs> I think it was very unconscious on my part, but because I had a partner that was so all in on being a dad, I did not realize how much of the quality time and kind of building of relationships that I kind of had left to him. I was leaving the house at 7 a.m. I wasn't getting home till 7 p.m. You know, my son was going to bed at eight. And even when I would get home, I'm drained. I've, you know, I've been at work all day. I, I don't feel like I can handle it. So I would take, you know, 30 minutes to decompress. And then what did I have my son? 30 minutes. You know, I even left maternity leave early to go back to work because I was like, I've been out too long. Like, you know, not prioritizing, like, you know, this is the time, this is the only time you really have with your, your child 
to kind of build that bond. I was like, up oh, two months. I need to, like, I need to go back. Like, what if work is too much, it's going to mount and somebody else is going to do this. And, you know, when they, at the end of the day, they were just fine, right? It, it was me feeling like I needed to give back or how would it look if I was out for too long? Those first moments that I wasn't a part of because I decided, well, you know, I don't want to not go to work or I have some work to do. I regret a lot of those moments because, you know, me being now much more seasoned, have been in the workplace for a while. I feel like there's no reason, you know, we don't cure cancer. I know, I know sometimes our jobs make us want to think that, that we're doing something that will save the world. You know, we don't, I sell wine, right? And before that I sold food. Um, I'm not doing anything that's going to save anybody's life. And at the end of the day, if I don't do it, somebody else will, but I just felt like I had to. And I prioritized a lot of work things, even when my work didn't always ask me to, I can't even put it on the job all of the time. It was me feeling like I had that responsibility to do that and to show up where I missed out on moments and time and creating, you know, bonds and memorable moments when I really wished I had not done that. Alicia, you obviously had this really big shift happen to you. Um, where you were forced suddenly to reprioritize, right? Like what you're talking about and, and focusing on yourself and your grief and your son after, after this death. I'm sure there are a lot of women listening who are hearing what you're saying and it's resonating in some way about this balance of work and the rest of life or work and children or work and partnership, whatever that might be, whatever that balance is. And I want to point out that you are still this badass woman who is the marketing director at, you know, this amazing, you know, wine importer. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what does that balance look like? Because I know you had this, this shift happen to you and you had to respond on some levels, right? But you still had a lot of choices to make about what you would prioritize moving forward. And you still have this amazing career, but yet we can, I can hear it in you that you are also this incredible mom who has navigated this journey in a way that puts your son first and your relationship with your son first. So how are you balancing both? I, I think a lot of it honestly was a mental shift. It was about what I thought I had to do to succeed versus what was actually required of me to succeed, right? So, you know, I had to come to this realization about work and work-life balance and really prioritizing that from my perspective and holding myself accountable to that, as well as the people that I worked for. I had to set up healthy boundaries with my work-life balance, right? You know, stop answering things after a certain amount, you know, after a certain time of the day, Stop over-promising to over-deliver, you know, to get it in sooner. Be realistic about expectations. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't degrade my output, right? That still had to happen. But I started having to reshape how I worked and how I communicated with the people that I was working with. I got, you know, Risha talks about the tribe. It's a real thing, right? Getting, getting a great sitter to help you to make sure that, you know, for a while, my son couldn't do anything after school because, okay, I got to work. I can't get you there. I can't get you so-and-so. Making sure that he wasn't deprived of things because of my work, right? So there's still a balance. Of course, he can't do everything, but making sure that 
my son's needs are covered first. And that is not just financial. It's emotional. It's social, making sure that we, you know, I was like, we're going to have a vacation every year. We hadn't done that yet. You know, it was just like making sure that we're cre- having that time to create moments together and that I'm prioritizing him over everything else. I love my job. I love what I do. I love the people that I work with, but they're replaceable, right? There's always another job. There's always another opportunity. The time that you have with your family, as I well know, you always think you have time to do it differently later. You don't always have the time. I had that realization happen to me. And so I was like, I'm not going to waste any more time not building those moments and prioritizing my son. I love that. I think, well, I don't think, I know there is an unspoken expectation that you are supposed to parent like you don't have a job and work like you aren't a parent. And to hear you find that balance and to really put the work in its place. Work is important. It pays the bills. It puts food, right? It's how you take care of your family. And it is just a job. I love seeing how that your sense of self is so strong and so clear and that sturdiness and that commitment to it's just a job has really served you and your family. How would you tell others to find this? How would you help other women find this in themselves or build this for themselves? How did you get that sense of self? I'm going to be honest. I think it starts with the actual job and me, you know, from my perspective, your, your job is, is a relationship, right? And it's a transactional relationship and you need to make sure that they're not getting more from you than you're getting from it. And so when you are living and working in a space you know, I, I tell people all the time, and maybe that's is overconfidence. Maybe it's, you know, people feel like it's too much, but I'm like, when I interview with somebody, they're not just interviewing me. I'm asking mm-hmm. questions. I'm interviewing them. Are they the right people to serve the type of life that I live? And, you know, I, I came to the conclusion, I prefer to work in smaller companies. And it's really about, you know, kind of a little bit more about culture. And I know you're like, oh, you came from Mars. It's the third, like, <laughs> I did, <laughs> but I worked, I worked on a smaller business within Mars. So we still kind of operated like a small, like a small company. And I figured out where I perform best, but it also gives me the leeway and the flexibility to be the type of parent that I need to be. So, you know, I set it up in my mind that I'm never afraid to walk away from a situation that doesn't serve my life in the way that I want to live it. That's how I feel. That's probably how I will feel for forever. I'm not ever afraid to walk away because this transactional relationship needs to be balanced and it needs to work for both of us. The day that you're getting more out of me than I'm getting out of you, then I shouldn't be there. I think it's so common for people in general. I don't think this is just for women to feel like they need to be grateful for their job, to feel like they owe their work a certain amount. I know I personally struggled with this in the past. My husband struggles with this now. Because your work in a lot of ways is your livelihood, because your career is in a lot of ways your identity, there's this attachment to it, like it's a meaningful two-way relationship. But so frequently, we forget the two-way part and we settle for a really crappy relationship because we're giving all of ourselves to this 
piece that is so important to us. But at the end of the day, it's a company that may or may not put that investment back. And if you are not being invested in, you should not be investing back. Well said, well said. But also there is something about women balancing it a little, a, a little bit more. There sure, is sure, something sure. with, you know, the fact that we have to, we're like, what did Alicia say? I went back to work early off mat leave yes. because I was like, I don't want to be away from too long. And, and it's, it's things like that, that men in general, they didn't have to worry about it because they weren't having the babies to begin with. We're fighting for, to get an, an equal paternity leave situation, but for the women, that's that's it was equal always- pay equal pay. You're right. But for women, there's always that tipping point, that balance. Why I, I got to do what I got to do. I got I, I can't be away from long. I just had a baby, but you know what? I got a week. Let's go. Almost like we're still supposed to be grateful that we're allowed to work. We're allowed. Yes. To be leaders. We're allowed. That's a whole other podcast, but yes. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest here. Yeah. We're, we're allowed to be in the workplace. <laughs> we feel like we're still earning it. You got, you earned it when you got the job. Exactly. Now the job has to earn you. I, Alicia, I think, I think you've said, oh, go, I'm sorry. Go, yeah, go, go, go. I think there's some level of like respect, right? That women mm-hmm. are always trying to earn in the workplace. And you feel like if, you know, until you have that respect, nothing that you do will ever be seen as good as, as it should be, or as, you know, better than coworkers. Like I work for people that couldn't even open an Excel file, let alone, it's like, but you're, you're three levels above me. Like how does this yes. And, you know, that's what I realized too, and which also helped me balance, you know, it's not so much about the hard skills moving up as much as it is about the soft skills, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, but a person is looking for somebody to be a leader. You know, how often have we been with somebody and you're like, oh my God, all he does is delegate. He just delegates the work down. And I was like, yeah, yeah, he does. And he's gotten promoted and he's moved up because they see him as somebody who can manage, who can lead. Yes can produce results, whether he's doing the results or whether he can motivate a team to, to produce the results. So it's, it's not just about how well you can do that spreadsheet, how pretty your presentations look, how many hours you're on the computer. It's about, can you get to the point where you can lead an organization? Can you get to the point where people will follow you and you have results? And so when, once I stopped worrying about how great this, you know, this data sheet was or how pretty my presentation was, and I started focusing on being a much more well-rounded employee, right? And speaking up more in meetings, bringing my ideas more to the forefront, trying to get, you know, direct reports and saying, okay, this person did this because of me, or I trained this person to do so. And so when people do well under you, that speaks well to you as a person that's leading them. Man, Alicia, we could be going on. There were so many more podcasts that came out of Alicia's mouth. You're, you're such an amazing individual. And, and there was so much more that we could talk to you about, but we're going to, we need to, we need to close this one up before we go. <laughs> we are collecting, we always collect advice from uh, the wonderful women who uh, come onto our podcast to share with the communities uh, with regards to moving forward with their careers or with their lives or with whatever it is that they're working towards. So we have three rapid fire questions for you. So quick answer, shortest point to the point. Um, are you ready? Yep. I'm ready to go. All right. Number one, is there a lesson that you recently learned that you wish you had learned earlier in your career? I, I just spoke to it before, but it's really about the, the 
interviewing of the company. I think you're so, so happy to get somewhere. You're so happy when somebody calls you back and you're so busy trying to impress them. Did they impress you? How do they fit into your life? What's the work-life balance that you'll get out of that? All of that is important in your matriculation there, how happy you will be there and how successful you will be at a company. Everybody's not the right fit. So you have to treat everybody and interview the people that are interviewing you. You've given us a lot of great insight from all of the lessons that you've learned. If you had to boil it down to just one thing about uh, your career, what lesson would you offer to another woman? Move with confidence. I think it's not really set up for you to believe in yourself or to, to, for you to believe that your work is, is good enough or that you're good enough, but you have to move with confidence and find your advocate. You have, if you're working and you've been there for three years and nobody's speaking up and you haven't gotten a promotion, I don't care how good your work is, you need to go because you don't see any positive movement. That means that they see you as a worker bee. They don't see you as the future leadership of the company and you know, exit sooner rather than later. In today's professional setting, do you think there's one skill that women really need to have in order to keep themselves moving forward? I would say the skill will be communication. The hardest thing to do in the world is to communicate. People take words, they think they mean different things. You know, you thought you said something, you didn't say you said something else. Learn how to communicate because managing up is how you will move forward in, in, in corporate America. It's not just about them managing you, it's managing up. What do they expect? What do they need? You know, how do they, you know, how did the people above you move up? And you need to be able to manage that relationship because if that, that relationship above you is not managed, you will find yourself stagnant and unhappy. I have heard that term before and thank you for saying it now and reiterating it. Manage up. The majority of the women, honestly, who have come on to this podcast have, have kind of sat in that same realm of, of advice but it is worth hearing it over and over and over and over again until it gets through people's skulls. Alicia, um, thank you so much. Is there, can you share with us the best way for someone in our audience to, to connect with you, to talk with you? Perhaps they have a professional question for you. The best way is to be just to contact me via LinkedIn. You know, my name is Alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A, last name Holt, H-O-L-T feel free to message me there. I'm always looking to network and obviously, you know, um, talk to more people. Uh, if you need any advice or just want to talk, just I'm always an open book. Alicia Holt, my friend, my love, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Thank you all so much for having me. I was surprised you wanted to talk to me. I never seem to be myself or my experience as something out of the box, but I really appreciate it. And it's been a great conversation. It has been, absolutely. And that will do it for this episode of Think Tank of Three. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, send us a message at thinktankofthree at gmail.com. Subscribe to the Think Tank of Three wherever you listen to podcasts and connect with us online. We blog weekly at thinktankofthree.com. Follow us on social media. You can find us individually on LinkedIn and as Think Tank of Three on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Women, click to join our private group on Facebook where we can all share advice and articles. And if you liked what you heard in the podcast, share it. You can find Think Tank of Three on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon Music, and SoundCloud.